All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. To Martha, he said, I am the resurrection, the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Before we begin our study in the Word of God this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're so very grateful that we have a redemption, a salvation that is not based on who we are or what we do. For when we truly contemplate what is required to have fellowship with you, to have a relationship with you, we recognize that we fall far short of possessing that perfect righteousness. And as the Old Testament prophet Isaiah said, all of our works of righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Even the best that we have, even the best that we do, doesn't cut it. It doesn't make it. It doesn't make the grade. We are. We fall short. Everyone falls short. And the only hope that we have is that someone, someone meets that standard for us. And that was provided by you through the Lord Jesus Christ, and that was predicted through the prophetic messianic passages in the Old Testament, fulfilled in the New, that the Messiah would come. And as the prophet Isaiah makes clear in Isaiah chapter uh, 53, that this would be fulfilled in the Messiah. He would be our substitute. So, Father, we pray today, pray this morning, that as we continue our study in Matthew on the life of Jesus, that we might come to a greater understanding of what is going on in your word and how that challenge impacts us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So we go forward in our study today. We're starting a new chapter, chapter 12, but it's not really a new section. It comes out of the previous section. It comes out of what's been going on in chapter 11. It was the beginning of chapter 11 where we really see a thematic shift uh, that takes place in, uh, in, in the gospel, where Matthew 11 starts to, uh, starts to build this opposition to Jesus and his claims to be the Messiah. If we're going to understand the ministry of Jesus Christ, then we have to understand Matthew 12. Matthew 12 is critical to understanding the chronological flow in the life of Christ. The Gospels are not just snapshots of things that happened in the life of Jesus. That appears that way uh, to some people if you read Matthew, and it's not arranged necessarily with everything in chronological order. It appears that he's just taking these snapshots. Sections are that way, but not the totality. Uh, others think that what we have in the Gospels are just some uh, sound bites from Jesus. But the Gospels are not giving us sound bites from Jesus. They are giving us a divinely inspired understanding and interpretation of the life of Christ. As, as, as John wrote in his gospel, if everything that Jesus said and did was written down, there, there wouldn't be enough books in the world to, to fill, to carry it. it, it it's it, it, enormous. And many times Jesus repeated himself in different contexts and different situations, and so that a lot of that is left out. What we have is that which is essential to understand the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, each gospel is generally organized chronologically. You only have two gospels that start with the birth of Christ, Matthew and Luke. After that, like the other gospels, the next thing that you see is the the forerunner, John the Baptist. You see the inauguration of Jesus' ministry. Then you see a period of time in Jesus' Jesus' ministry when he is reaching out primarily to the Jews. The focus is on the Jews. He is offering the kingdom to the Jews. And this probably took place over the first two years of his ministry. But as you read 
insightfully in the Gospels, you start to see little hints, little foreshadowings that are stated by the writers of Scripture where you see a little bit of opposition here and a little bit of opposition there, but you don't hear, you don't get a sense that of any foreboding such as the the cross or the death of Christ or any of that there it's 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 a focus upon Jesus ministry to Israel to the Israelites offering the kingdom which is clearly understood in terms of the, what was prophesied and what was promised uh, in the Old Testament and then you get to a turning point a crisis point where everything pivots and instead of there being acceptance of Jesus and his ministry, there is not only an increased opposition, but a hardening of that opposition, especially from the religious leaders, but also from a uh, somewhat higher percentage of the people. And it culminates in a formal rejection of Jesus' claims to be the Messiah. A, a, a formal hardening of the, of the rejection of his uh, presenting himself as the promised Davidic king to fulfill all of those uh, Old Testament uh, prophecies. And it's at this turning point that the cross is first alluded to, that we first get a hint of death and destruction that is coming. And it is at that point that there's a, a, a shift that occurs in Jesus' ministry. He, he shifts his focus to, uh, to the Gentiles. He shifts his focus to uh, a more private ministry. It's not public. He shifts his focus away from announcing the kingdom of God, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's, we don't find that anymore. Uh, there is this uh, significant shift that is the result of this Jewish rejection of Jesus' claims to be the Messiah and to offer the kingdom. And what we learn from this and what we will see from this is how God will use that rejection also to fulfill prophecy, to fulfill those prophecy, those prophetic passages from the Old Testament that depict the suffering and the death of the Messiah. When you look at Old Testament prophecies, there's two categories, those that focus on the suffering and the death of the Messiah and those that focus on his glorious reign. What had happened in Second Temple Judaism was that the suffering, the suffering Messiah passages were being ignored and the focus was on the political reign of the Messiah. But they focused upon this in terms of the deliverance of, of Israel from the oppression of Rome. And as a result of that, they had formed a, a skewed view of the role of the Messiah in both his uh, spiritual sense, because he would come as a Pharisee and he would uh, he would cooperate with and work with the Pharisees into in, in continuing to develop uh, the oral law and the rules and regulations of the Pharisees, but he would also be instrumental in throwing off the reign and the oppression of, of the Romans. Jesus didn't dance to that tune. John the Baptist didn't dance to that tune. That was the point of that little section back in chapter 11 when Jesus says that he would liken this generation to children sitting in the marketplace and they call out to other children and they say, look, we played the flute for you and you didn't, you didn't dance and we mourned and you didn't mourn. The point that he's making there is we tried to get you to dance to our tune and you wouldn't do it. So that hardened their, uh, their opposition. So in chapter 7, we begin to see the development of this split as Jesus, as the good shepherd, is coming and confronting the evil shepherds, the Pharisees, who have led the people astray. And Jesus then is calling out to the afflicted of Israel uh, who have been oppressed by the legalism of the Pharisees. And this hardens then in chapter 12. We look at those that last set of verses we looked at last week in Matthew 11. Jesus offers this to the lowly of Israel. He says, Come to me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, 
For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I want you to notice those words that I've underlined on the screen. Labor and rest. Come to me, all you who labor, and I will give you rest. And this next verse, take my yoke upon you. And we saw last week that this, that his, this concept of taking a yoke is to putting yourselves under the authority of a, of a teacher. And he's contrasting his yoke, which is easy and light, with the heavy yoke of the legalism and the burdens that were uh, had been developed by the Pharisees. So he's clearly contrasting himself to that of the Pharisees. And he says, if you come to me, you will find rest for your soul. The picture of rest in the Torah is the Shabbat, is the Sabbath day, the day of rest. So this sets the stage for two Sabbath controversies with the Pharisees that will crystallize and focus the opposition because what we'll see is when we come to the end of these two episodes and we get down to verse 14 is the Pharisees go off and conspire how they can destroy Jesus. That's the focal point. They want him out of there because he is upsetting their apple cart. He is challenging their authority, challenging their interpretation and understanding of the law. And now they see that he is dangerous uh, because of the way that he is influencing people. Uh, Often today you hear these interpretations, these interpretations of of the... um, uh, life of Jesus as some sort of uh, political revolutionary. That's, that's, that's skewed. He was, a, a, if anything, he is a religious revolutionary because he's starting a back to the Bible movement. He wants to get back to the Torah as it was written, not as it had been uh, interpreted by the, uh, by the Pharisees. And so he is uh, announcing, he will announce by the time we get to the end of this section that because of the rejection of the Pharisees, uh, he's, uh, he's not going to force things. Jesus was a perfect gentleman. He's not going to force Israel to accept him. He's going to say, you don't want me? I'm going to the Gentiles. They will accept me. And this is what we see when we get to uh, Matthew 12, 21. He says, and in his name, uh, Gentiles will trust. So we see the announced shift that is coming uh, as we shift from, from the focus to the Jews. He's offered the kingdom to, to them. They've rejected. It will go to the Gentiles. This also fulfills prophecy from the Torah, the last uh, uh, at the very end of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 32, 21, uh, we read, they have provoked me to jealousy by what is not God. This is an indictment of much of the history of Israel. They rejected Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they worshiped idols, the Baalim and the Ashtoreth. And so God indicts them in 3221. They've provoked me to jealousy by what is not God. They have moved me to anger by their foolish idols. And idols don't have to be just idols of stone and wood and metal. They can be idols of the mind. They can be, uh, you can worship tradition. You can worship money. You can worship uh, status symbols. That, that all can come under the category of idolatry. And so God said, but I will provoke them to jealousy by those who are not a nation, not a people, uh, not the people of God. Uh, I will move them to anger by a foolish nation. He's going to take the word and go to the Gentiles. And just as a side note here, the very next verse in Deuteronomy 32:22 says, For a fire is kindled in my anger and shall burn to the lowest part of Sheol. A couple of weeks ago I talked about different levels of our degrees of punishment in the lake of fire. And here is an example of that from this verse, uh, that there are that lowest part of Sheol indicating different levels, different degrees of punishment in the lake of fire. That's no extra charge for that added information this morning. And so we come to this confrontation with the Pharisees here, and the uh, focus is on two events that are that surround a Sabbath controversy. At the core of both of these, you have a controversy over the purpose and the function of Shabbat, of the Sabbath. And the first, uh, the first event is described in verses 1 through 8, 
where there is a Sabbath controversy related to Jesus working and allowing his disciples to work on the Sabbath as they walk through fields of grain and they're plucking the grain that was viewed under Pharisaic oral law as a violation of, of Torah. And so he is accused of violating the Sabbath laws. And then the second incident is covered in verses 9 through 14 when Jesus heals a man of a withered hand in the synagogue. And this, again, is seen as a violation of, of Shabbat. So to begin with, we have to understand the significance of the Sabbath in the Old Testament and how it came to be uh, reinterpreted and why it came to be reinterpreted under the oral law that was established by, by the Pharisees. So we have to come to understand a little bit about uh, the history of Israel after the exile when, when they returned. First of all, the term Shabbat is related to the Hebrew word for seven, and it is also related to the Hebrew word for rest. So when you read seven, you think of Shabbat. When you read Shabbat, you think of rest, and all of this ties together. It's interesting that the very first reference to the Sabbath, to uh, Sabbath observance, doesn't come in Genesis. It doesn't come in the early part of Exodus. The first mention comes in Exodus chapter 16 when the Israelites have uh, complained about the lack of food and God says, I'm going to provide food for you. It's going to be this miracle bread that's going to appear like dew every single morning and I'm going to provide just enough for that day and you're supposed to go out and gather what you need for that day and no more. And then uh, the next morning, you're going to get up and go out and gather some more. And it's going to be there every single day. The only, And if you get more than you can eat, it's going to rot by the next morning. We're not putting any preservatives in it. You're not going to have any ingredients here other than that which is purely divine. It's angel bread, and that's it, uh, original angel food. And it's going to be filled with worms and rot the next morning. God was teaching them to live day by day and to rest in his provision that he would take care of them. And then when it came to the seventh day, he said, on the sixth day you will gather a double portion. You'll gather enough for the sixth day and enough for the seventh day so that that on that day and that day alone, the uh, manna that you gather will uh, continue to be fresh even the next day. God was demonstrating this day in and day out that he was providing for the needs of Israel. So part of the purpose of the uh, of Shabbat was rest, resting, not just resting from your physical labor, but resting in God. It is a picture of trust in God that I'm not going to worry, work. It's not up to me to take care of my survival. I'm going to rest and relax in God. And so that is part of it, part of its sig- significance. It's ordained by God in Exodus chapter 20. So just very shortly after the first episode with manna, which uh, in the patois of today would be what it is, uh, they didn't know what that was. What it is, they'd get up every morning. I think it was like a Shipley donut, but that's just me. Only healthier. All right, here's the command in the uh, in the Decalogue, and the uh, which is the prelude to the uh, to the Torah. The Torah is comprised of 613 commandments. It is an integral, an integrated uh, body of law. You don't just pick and choose. It's not divided into parts, and you can take one part and not the other part. It is an integrated whole. It is a single document, a single law, always referred to as Torah, which is a singular collective noun, not as a plural. It's never referred to as the laws. It's referred to as the law of Moses. So the command is to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. That means to keep it distinct, to keep it separate. Every other day you can do things, but on Shabbat we live differently. Six days you shall labor. Notice that's a command. You're going to work for six days. That's not an option. It's not that you're going to sit on your rear end for six days and take in a welfare check. As Paul says in the New Testament in Second Thessalonians, if you don't work, you don't eat. That's God's welfare plan. It's not socialism. The Torah of Moses, the New Testament, does not allow for 
uh, for communism, socialism, or any other form that doesn't recognize the importance and centrality of personal responsibility, which is manifested in, in labor. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. So before you rest, you work. That's the principle. But the seventh day, God says, is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work. That's your prohibition. You don't do any work. Now, it really doesn't define a lot here about what work is. It's a little more defined, and there's some examples giving it, given later in Torah, but not that many. It's more of a general recognition. You know when you're working and, and when you're not. In it you shall do no work, you nor your son nor your daughter nor your male servant nor your female servant nor your cattle nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth to see and all that is in them and rested the seventh day. Now let me make just a couple of important observations here. Why, according according to modern rabbinical Judaism, why do you, why does a Jew observe Shabbat? They observe Shabbat according to rabbinical theology because God made Israel for Shabbat. And that comes out of Pharisaical theology, that Israel was made for the Sabbath. But that's not what we see here. That, that, that the principle that Jesus restates is that the Sabbath was made for Israel, not Israel for the Sabbath. It is a sign of this covenant, the Mosaic covenant that God made with the Israelites on Mount Sinai, the Sinaitic covenant. It's another term that we use. Now, why do you observe Sabbath? Why? What does the text say? The text says you do this because of what God did. God set the pattern. God worked for six days, and he ceased his labor on the seventh day. Now, a question I've thrown out to a couple of my uh, Jewish friends who are a little more conservative. You throw this out to some who aren't too conservative and who don't really have a respect for the Scripture. uh, They don't care. But if you believe that the Torah is divinely inspired, then you have to wrestle with this because God says, here's the pattern. I worked for six days. Well, how long are those days? You go back to Genesis 1, we all know there's a big controversy over how long those days were. And until you get to the point of of, um, of the late uh, 1800s, early 1900s, with the influence of historical geology and the influence of Darwinism, uh, most of Western civilization believed that the earth was only uh, uh, was created around four or 5,000 B.C., it's only of the introduction of historical geology and uh, evolutionary theory that those time periods began to be uh, pushed out and expanded, and people began to say, well, we've got to kind of fit the Bible to our experience. It's always, you, you always have a problem when you try to fit the Bible to your experience. The Bible tells you how to interpret your experience, how to interpret the fossils, all of these other things. That's one reason we're going on this um, Raft trip to the Grand Canyon is because Steve Austin has his Ph.D. in geology from the uh, University of Pennsylvania, uh, has been leading tours. He's produced numerous videos and written numerous technical peer-reviewed articles. By peer-reviewed, I don't mean they've just been reviewed by Christian creationists. They have been peer-reviewed by evolutionists where he has challenged on the basis of solid scientific data all of the long age periods that supposedly uh, were were documented and given evidence by the by by the grand Can- by the uh, age of the grand canyon if you grew up like I did you heard that the grand canyon was formed millions of years ago and it took thousands and thousands and thousands of years uh in order to carve out the grand canyon well that's what we were taught 25, 30, 35, 40 years ago. But that is not standard in in geology anymore. They recognize that because of a lot of work done not only by creationists but also by evolutionists, that the Grand Canyon was formed by a catastrophic event. It wasn't formed according to the principles of historic geology and according to the principles of uniformitarianism. And so a lot of the ideas that undergird uh, historical ge- geology 
that they thought were true back in the late 1700s and early 1800s have not proven to be true. Nevertheless, people who don't want to believe the Bible are going to hold on to that. Well, what the Scripture says here is that if you're Jewish and you observe Shabbat once every seven days, then the pattern is what God did. Now, if these days aren't to be understood, let the Bible interpret what day means, okay? Don't impose it on there. The Bible always tells you what words mean and how to interpret those words. If if day in Genesis 1 means a historical geological age, if it means thousands or tens of thousands of years, then the way to properly understand uh, Exodus 20.11 would be in, for in 600,000 years, the Lord... Uh, made the heavens and the earth and rested on the 700,000th year. Okay, now if that's the command and you're Jewish, that means I can work every day, every single day, because I don't have to rest until the 700,000th year, and I'm not going to be here then. Okay? So if you're going to be consistent, you recognize that what is being said in Exodus 20.11 is that you work six 24-hour consecutive days and you rest on the seventh 24-hour consecutive day because that is how God did it. If God didn't do it that way in Genesis 1, if Genesis 1 isn't talking about six 24-hour consecutive days, then you have destroyed the, the law of Shabbat. It's wiped out hermeneutically. The day here has to be the same as the day in Genesis, or its language becomes meaningless and becomes gobbledygook, and you would be, uh, therefore, forced to you know, vote liberal in everything that you do because then you can reinterpret the uh, uh, Constitution all the time, and it can be whatever you want it to be. But if you are conservative and you believe language means what language means, then... You can't go changing the terms later on just because it doesn't quite fit your worldview. Now, the Shabbat was important and significant because God had given it to Israel as a sign of the Mosaic Covenant. And in the Mosaic Covenant, in Leviticus chapter 26, God says, if you don't obey me, then I'm going to uh, give you various national spankings. I'm going to take you into the woodshed and give you discipline. And there are five stages or cycles of discipline that are described in Leviticus chapter 26. And in the middle of that, or at the end of that rather, we come to the fifth cycle of discipline where God said, if you continue to be so disobedient to me that you don't listen to me, then I am going to take you out of this land that I've given you. You don't deserve it, and and you you are rebelling against me to such a degree that I'm taking it all away from you, and you're going to be uh, permanently grounded uh, for a lengthy period of time. And so this is what he says in Leviticus 26.33, I will scatter you among the nations. That's the, the Greek word that's used there in the Septuagint is diaspora. I will scatter you among the nations and draw out a sword after you. Your land shall be desolate and your cities waste. This happened in 586 B.C., and it happened in A.D. 70 with the destruction of the Second Temple and destruction of Jerusalem. And then God says, Then the land shall enjoy its Sabbaths as long as it lies desolate and you are in your enemy's lands. Then the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbath. So apparently part of that divine discipline is they were ignoring the law and they weren't observing the sabbatical year. Every seventh year they were, every seventh day they took a year off, a day off. Every seventh year they took a year off. At the end of 49 years, seven times seven, you had the 50th year, which was the year of Jubilee, and they didn't work that year either. They rested in and God, they rested in his, his provision. So he says, as long as it lies desolate, it, sh- it shall rest. For the time it did not rest on your Sabbaths when you dwelt in it. This is restated in Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles 36.20, which is written after the exile, talks about that first exile when God destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed the first temple by the Babylonians. We're told, and those who escaped from the sword he carried away to Babylon. 
where they became servants to him, that's Nebuchadnezzar and his sons, under, until the rule of the kingdom of Persia, to what? To fulfill, to bring to completion the prophecy of the word of the Lord back there in Leviticus 26. To fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah. We'll look at that passage in a minute. Until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths, and as, as long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill the 70 years. And so in Jeremiah 29.10, the Lord revealed to Jeremiah that that this uh, exile would last for 70 years to make up for these Sabbath, sabbatical years that had not been observed over a period of 490 years. Now, we don't know which years they didn't observe. They obviously observed the sabbatical year for a period of time, and they may have observed it at later times under David and under under Josiah. But during the period from the conquest to the exile, there were 70 sabbatical years within a period of 490 years that were not observed. And so the Lord says, because you didn't pay me what was due, you didn't take those years off, uh, I'm going to uh, have an, we're going to have an enforced period of payment, and you're leaving the land, and the land is now going to rest for those 70 years. Uh, you did not, um, you did not fulfill when you were in the land. Jeremiah 29:10. Now this was such a significant thing. I mean, this just brought a crisis into the psyche of of the, of the Jews because they did not like being ripped out of their land and sent off into captivity in, in Babylon at, at the beginning of the diaspora. When they came back, though, they had a short memory. That's not unique to the Jews, by the way. Okay, every one of us, when, when we get disciplined by God, have very short memories, and we have a tendency to, as Peter puts it, return like a dog to its vomit. We just go back to the, uh, uh, to all the disobedience and carnality, thinking that somehow it won't happen the next time. You know, it's sort of like this generation that is, that is running this country. It has been demonstrated time and time again, socialism and communism just don't work. But in the arrogance of this nation, we think that, oh, we're going to try it again because we're so smart now, we have such technology, we can make it work. No, it'll never work. It's always going to be self-destructive. So Nehemiah faced this problem. There were, uh, there were at least three major returns of, of Jews from, from Babylon. The first came under Zerubbabel. Uh, at the time in, in 538 BC, and then there were a couple of returns under Ezra and, and, and Nehemiah, and so by the time we get to around 444 BC, Nehemiah, uh, and this is the story of the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah brings another group back, and they're going to uh, finish rebuilding the fortifications around uh, around Jerusalem. And they rebuilt the wall in a remarkable amount of time. It was an engineering feat that is unparalleled. And then they went, then Nehemiah went back, uh, to, to Persia. And then he returned. And when he came back, he found that the people had forgotten the law. That they were ignoring God again and they were violating Shabbat again. And in Nehemiah 13:17 we read Nehemiah saying, Then I contended with the nobles of Judah and said to them, what evil thing is this that you do by which you profane Shabbat? Did not your fathers do thus, and did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Yet you bring added wrath on Israel by profaning Shabbat. This was the problem. And so what happened after that, we have to understand this to understand the, the chapter, is that when uh, the Israelites returned from the land, they had to teach the people the law because they were not knowledgeable of Torah. And so Ezra, who was the priest, Ezra established a school or training group of priests, and their responsibility was to teach uh, teach the Jews the Torah, the law of Moses, the 613 commandments that make up the, the uh, law of Moses. And this group was called the Sopharim. A sofer is a scribe. That's the Hebrew word for a scribe. And their responsibility was primarily to uh, copy and record Scripture, to preserve Scripture, to watch over the scrolls, and that when a scroll began to show where, they would completely, they would make a new copy and then completely destroy it. 
so that it would not uh, create problems later on. So they kept everything fresh. Evidence of that is seen in the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered down near uh, site at Qumran towards on the northwest shore of the Dead Sea in 1948. We're still going through all of the uh, uh, bits and pieces of, of evidence from, from the Dead Sea. But there were some large scrolls, the largest of which was the Scroll of Isaiah. And up to that point, the oldest complete copy of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, that we had dated back to about 950 A.D. That's not very old, considering it the last uh, book of the Old Testament was written around 450, 444, 400 B.C., okay, right in that time frame. So you've gone about 1,300 years with no new Old Testament Scripture, and it's been copied over 1,300 years. Well, liberals who came along and said, well, God really hadn't revealed anything to us. How can we know it's true? This was really written by people much later, and all these other uh, things that they come up with said, you can't trust your Bible. It's changed a lot. Well, then they discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were, uh, which, con- which included a lot of Scripture from the Hebrew Scriptures, and most of them were written between about uh, 250 to about um, the time of the birth of Christ. And so all of a sudden now you've got uh, manuscripts that we had from about 950, and now we jump back almost a 1,000 years or a little over a 1,000 years to these older, older manuscripts, and how many differences did they find? Hardly any. Hardly any. In fact, the differences they did find were usually updates in spelling, modernization of spelling, modernization of grammar, punctuation, sometimes word order switch, things like that, which are standard copyist errors. But there were very few significant. In fact, Miller Burroughs, who was the head of the Old Testament department at Yale, was one of the primary initial workers and translators of the Dead Sea Scrolls back in the 50s, and he was one of the translators for the Revised Standard Version. And Millard Burroughs said that that in the whole Isaiah Scroll, he would only think that the Dead Sea Scrolls had a better reading in ten specific incidences. But Ten years later, he said he didn't think it was better in any instance. Okay? So that tells us that, that the manuscript that lies behind the Old Testament is extremely trustworthy and reliable. It didn't change over the years. That's due to the results of the Sophorim. Well, the Sophorim, so the Sophorim did a lot more than just copy, though. They taught the law, instructed the law. So you have this original group of Sophorim under Ezra that taught the 613 commandments of the Torah, the mitzvahot, that's the Hebrew word, the mitzvahot, to uh, to the Israelites at that time. But when that generation died off, there was a second generation of Sophorim that came along, and they thought, well, it's really good to make sure that people understand the law here, because if they break the law, again, we're going to get kicked out. God's going to remove us from the land. We don't want to go through that again. So we want to do everything we possibly can to protect the the 613 commandments of the law so that we don't violate them. So the best way to do that is to create a fence around the law. We're going to create this fence around the law, and we're going to add about, uh, they added about 1,200 additional commandments that would protect the, the law. For for example, um, they there was uh, uh, one of the laws states that you won't boil a calf in its mother's milk. That's all the law says. And that the background for that is that is something that would take place in ritual sacrifices among the, among the pagans. Now, how do we keep from even accidentally coming to a place where somebody's gonna, going to boil or cook the, the meat, the calf, in its mother's milk? Well, that means that, that let's, let's protect that. Let's make sure that we don't eat dairy and meat at the same time. Beyond that, let's make sure that we don't cook at the same time because there's a possibility that, that if this dish has been used to, to cook meat and, and, and 
and it's also used for dairy that may be in an infinitesimal possibility there's a relationship between the the milk and the meat and so we're going to have separate dishes so in a kosher household, you've got meat dishes and you've got dairy dishes. You go, uh, you've been on a trip to Israel with me. We stayed at places where they have a kosher kitchen and it's either dairy or it's meat. It's not both. You don't mix the two at all. You can't go to McDonald's in Israel and get a, get a cheeseburger. You're mixing meat and dairy. You can't do that. So this is the secondary, this is the fence. These are all of these additional rules. And, and so they built this fence. And all of these rules were developed between 450 B.C. and 30 B.C., 30 years, approximately 25 years before the birth of Christ. That, and that group uh, uh, were the, called the Sophorim. Then you had another group that came along and says, those commandments weren't quite enough. What happens if you get a hole in that fence? And then you break one of the original 613 commandments, we're going to risk getting kicked out of the land again. So we've got to create another fence. And this group were teacher called the teachers, the Tanaim, and they built a second fence of, and this, none of this was written down, from 30 B.C. until 220 A.D. when Judah Hanasi, Judah the Prince, had all of this written down uh, to be preserved, and that's what we call the Mishnah. Now, what's their authority for doing this? Well, they came up with a story. How do we know that this has these, all of these, Oral law regulations are, are, are accurate. Well, when Moses went up to Mount Sinai, God gave him the written law, the 613 commandments, but God also, he's up there for 40 days and 40 nights. God had him memorize all of these additional laws. That's called the oral law. It was given in Mount Sinai. And so they had all of these oral law regulations that they would appeal to, and they would say, well, that came from Moses also. It's not, not just the written 613 commandments, it's all, all of the others. So there were all of these regulations that, that had been developed since Ezra that were not revealed by God from Mount Sinai. They were part of the oral law, and many of them that surrounded the observance on the, on, on, on the Sabbath. Uh, in fact, the Mishnah lists 39 specific things that you're prohibited to do on the Sabbath, and, and they get microscopic. And, for example, you're not supposed to work, you're not supposed to labor on the Sabbath. And so they would come along and they would say that, well, what happens is if you're walking through a, if you're walking through a grain field, uh, then uh, you might just uh, walk through the grass and there may, be, uh, there may be a stalk of wheat that's growing wild in that field of grass. And if you're walking through that field of grass and there's this wild uh, stalk of wheat that's there and you inadvertently step on it and it separates the wheat from its stalk, then you've been guilty of reaping on the Sabbath day. And then, furthermore, if your foot comes down and twists the wheat just enough where it separates the wheat from the chaff, then you're guilty of threshing on the Sabbath day. And if you continue to walk and the outer hem of your garment causes just enough breeze to separate uh, the chaff away from the, the wheat, then you're guilty of winnowing on the Sabbath day. And if a bird or a rodent comes along and then sees that exposed piece of wheat and swallows it, then he's guilty of storing the wheat on the Sabbath day. And now you've been guilty of, of violating the Sabbath and working. You have, you have threshed and you've winnowed and you've stored wheat and all of this is a violation of the law. So that's what's going on here in this, in this first, first episode. In the second episode is defining uh, the, the authority here and whether or not Jesus has the authority to do what he's going to do. And it all goes back to this misunderstanding and this distortion actually of what went on uh, in terms of the Sabbath. So what's the principle of the Sabbath? We have to understand this before we get into the, te- into the text, which we'll do next week. The principle of Shabbat is to trust in God, is to rest in his provision, so that man is not made for Shabbat. That is a yoke upon man. That is putting all of these excessive regulations on man uh, to make life, and it makes life more difficult. But God made Sabbath for man so that we could relax and enjoy Him and reflect upon Him. And so Shabbat became a day uh, of, of rest 
for the purpose of resting from our labor and emulation of God, but to focus our attention upon God and God providing for us, as Jesus prayed in the uh, in the disciples or the model prayer, give us this day our daily bread, going back to a reflection on God's provision uh, of manna. Now, we're not under the law anymore. The sabbatical law from Exodus 20 is the only part of the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, that's not repeated in the New Testament. And then why is that? It is because Jesus, the Messiah, is the fulfillment of the rest prophecies. We rest in him. Our rest is in him. And this is uh, the... the, the, uh, uh, Ending of the law in relation to Sabbath is found in passages such as Colossians 2, 16 and 17 and Romans 14, 5 through 6, is that this day observance is ended. Our rest is now in Jesus. So we rest in him day in and day out. We constantly walk with the Lord, and he is our, the source and sustenance of everything in our life. Now, there is a lesson, I think, an application from, from, from Shabbat. I've had uh, the opportunity to have uh, dinner with Jewish families, uh, Shabbat dinner on Friday night. Shabbat begins at sundown, sundown on Friday. And there's an application I think we can take from this, and that's the importance of rest, not just working 24-7, seven days a week. It's important for all of us to back off and to recreate and to relax and to trust in God. And one of the things that I've been impressed with is what takes place in a Jewish household when they're observing Shabbat. They, first of all, you can't turn on any lights. So you either turn them on before sundown and leave them on all night or something else, but you can't turn on your television, you can't turn on your computer, you can't turn on your cell phone, you can't read your email. Uh, All of those electronic things are off. And so you limit the distractions. Uh, you you come together as a family. And I know one particular friend of mine that uh, reared his sons this way, and I wish he would write all these different things out. He would come up, he would think all week long about different topics of conversation related to current events. When the kids got older, he would have them start to debate one another on whether or not Israel was occupying Palestine or whether they owned all of the land, all of these current event issues, so that these kids starting at 12, 13, 14, 15 years of age are really getting educated. They're taught critical thinking skills around the home, and they're taught to think about current events in terms of Torah. Now, there's a great application for us as believers. This is family time. There should be a designation. We've lost this in the church. Now, there are people who abuse the Sabbath. The Puritans said that, that the Sabbath is the Christian Sunday, and there's no basis in the text for that. But there is a principle here, and that is the importance of rest and the importance of using this as a time, setting aside the, the, the observance on Sunday as a, as a significant day for focusing on the Lord. Now, this shouldn't be taken legalistically, I don't mean that, but in previous generations, uh, we had this, at least the support of most of the culture, and most things weren't open on Sunday. Now, I'm against all the blue laws, but it meant that uh, Christians didn't get caught up in having to be called upon to work. They, there wasn't a conflict between what went on the rest of the week and and, and Sunday morning. They they had that, that this, we had the same problem under the Roman Empire. There wasn't a, a weekend in the Roman Empire. If you were a Christian the first three centuries of Christianity, you had to work uh, 24-7, seven days a week. And so they would, they would have their uh, Bible classes, worship services at night, and not during the day, but once the Roman Empire went Christian, so to speak, then Sunday was honored as a as a day of rest. So all I'm saying is that as a family, and using this as a family training time where parents sit around the table, have dinner, have conversation, uh, parents ought to, if you have younger kids, you can tell different Bible stories at that time. You can make up some basic questions to get them to think about what's going on in those events and what they mean, what their significance is. As they get older, you can expand those those topics and get more sophisticated, more detailed, teaching them how to think about issues in their life 
related to the Word of God and in relation to a biblical worldview so that you as a parent are fulfilling your responsibilities to train up your children the nurture and admonition of the Lord as well as to teach them critical thinking skills to prepare them for adulthood. Those are just some principles of application. So the Sabbath doesn't continue. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Sabbath, and we rest in him. Now, next time we'll come back and look specifically at these two events because they have to be taken together. We've got the background now. They have to be taken together because together they emphasize and and establish Jesus' claims to be the Messiah and his claim to be God because he is the Lord of the Sabbath. And this is what finally breaks it with the Pharisees, and this is what the ultimate charge was, was he made himself out to be God. This is why they they reject his claims, and this is why there's this break that occurs that ultimately and eventually culminates in in his crucifixion. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we're thankful for this opportunity to... Uh, come together this morning to meet, to reflect, to think about about your word. We also see, as from our study, that that all of the scripture fits together. It intersects. That what we find in in Genesis is is established and built upon in Exodus, and is and is referred back to in Second uh, Chronicles, and it goes forward through Jeremiah, through Daniel, and that all of the Bible uh, interrelates. It's not just uh, happenstance is not something some individual just cobbled together, but over the period of of uh, thousands of years when the scripture is written, it all perfectly correlates together. Great evidence here that the Bible is not a human book about about you, but is a divine book revealed uh, through human beings and preserved by you for our instruction and for our edification. Father, we recognize that the scriptures in the Old Testament prophesied that there would be a king who would come, that there would be a servant who would come, who would uh, give his life uh, for many. Uh, Isaiah says in the Old Testament that all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, but the Lord Yahweh has laid upon him, that is the servant, the iniquity of us all. That's the picture is that, that the Messiah, the suffering servant, would bear the sin of the world, the iniquity of us all. Father, we pray that if there's anyone listening who has never trusted in Christ as Savior, that they would take this opportunity to do so. Salvation is a free gift. We can't do enough righteousness to merit your approval, but Jesus' righteousness is given to us, just as with Abraham in the Old Testament, where, where we read that his faith was accounted as righteousness. And that's the same basis that we have in the New Testament, that trusting in Christ, he who knew no sin, was made sin for us, that the righteousness of God would be found uh, in us. The issue is simply trusting in him and him alone. Father, we pray for the rest of us that there would be a challenge here that as we recognize that Jesus is who he claims to be, that he has ultimate authority. He is the creator God of the universe. He is the God who made the heavens and the earth and the seas and all that is in them in six days. And thus, it is implicit in recognizing him that we submit to his authority as the creator God, the one who created us and the one who created all things and the one who died for our sins, that we might have eternal life. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.